0: Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast, where you'll hear right from the source how people like you have been able to buy and build their businesses across different industries all over the country. Dan Claps is the co-founder of Career Transition Leads, Nurture Assist, and Find a Business Online. Christian Dadalak is a franchise consultant with Find a Business Online, and he heads up business development for Career Transition Leads and Nurture Assist. He also runs an independent franchise consulting business, The Franchise Guys. Together, they formed relationships with hundreds of successful business owners who are excited to share their stories with you. Now, here are your hosts, Dan and Christian. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast with my co-host, Dan Claps. Today, we have a really exciting guest with us, Eric Van Horn. I know Eric pretty well at this point. You know, we've bumped into each other at several franchise conferences. And Eric's the type of guy that he's done, it seems like, everything within the franchise industry. You know, he's been a Z. He's been a Zor, he's been a consultant and vendor, but I think it'd be better to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So Eric, if you'd like to give us a little bit of your background and how you got into franchising and
1: anything else you'd like to share. Awesome, guys. It's an honor to be here. Both of you have been excited about this. So the quick little bio is 20 years ago, I bought a house, flipped it, made about $10,000, $20,000, rolled that into my first franchise. That turned into... 12 locations and 42 locations in an area development. 10 years later, sold that, got into franchise consulting, did well with that. All along the way, I was doing franchise development. So I did franchise development for a number of different brands, bought more area developments, bought more franchises as a franchisee over the next 10 years, started a brand with two other guys as a franchisor, took an early exit out of that. A little bit too much work for me. A lot of work. Those guys are crushing it now. I'm doing more of a lifestyle play at this point. So I take equity and brands, advisory shares, have masterminds for franchisees and franchisors right now. And up to some cool things that I'll probably roll out later this year. But man, I love franchising. It's been so good to me. So that's the quick bio. Solid, solid.
0: So what I'm curious to learn is, when you got that, what'd you say? It was around $10,000
1: when you sold it? I think it was closer to $20,000, my share of that. I partnered with my parents on that house. Yeah, partnered with my parents on that house. Here's the real story. I was going to law school, ready to go to law school, went to orientation. I thought this is gonna suck. I was a C student growing up because I just didn't care about school a whole lot. And I'm like going to law school. I read the book, The Firm. I realized how many hours that attorneys have to work and how little money they actually make. They make good money, but compared to what you can do as an entrepreneur, it just wasn't that exciting to me. So I started a lawn business, bought an old truck, a used lawn mower, and some shovels. And I started to do some yard work for people. And I was working in this older couple's house outside of their house on their lawn. She came out one afternoon and said, brought me some water and said, basically, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I'm going to be a real estate investor. I was just about ready to get my real estate license. And some friends were invested in real estate. And she said, well, we did that 20 years ago. I said, well, tell me more. So we bought a condo down by the beach and we did it for tax purposes. And now we want to sell it. I said, well, how much do you want for it? She said, nothing. We just want somebody to take over our payments. I said, let me get this straight. You've been paying on this mortgage for 20 years. You bought this house 20 years ago when it wasn't worth as much. It's appreciated in value. You've been paying down the mortgage. And now I can just assume your assumable mortgage and you don't want me to pay anything for that. She said, just the closing costs, just pay the closing costs. And I'm like, I went and got an option contract with a $100 check. And I still have that option contract today. And I gave that to her and she signed it. And she said, Our real estate agent's going to be so mad at us because we've been wanting to sell this. He doesn't want to sell it because he makes money every month renting this out for us. But Eric, you seem like a nice young man and we want to do this for you. And so I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money for closing costs. It was like I was making money digging flower beds and mowing grass and... I left there and I called up my parents and I said, here's the deal. Do you want to partner? And they said, it sounds too good to be true. And I said, well, if you don't do it, Gary will do it, who is my future broker. And he's like, I don't know how Eric did this to my parents, but he did. And I would do this if I'm you. And I partnered with them. I ended up selling it to them within a couple months, made that money, rolled that into my first franchise, which was Liberty Tax Service at the time.
0: So why Liberty Tax? And how did you get into franchising? You got that lump sum of money, but then you immediately just said, Hey, I'm going to do franchising.
1: How did that get into the picture? Yeah. So I had some friends that were looking at business. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. So that to me, I had no choice to be an entrepreneur because that's what I wanted to do. So I was hanging around entrepreneurial people. And some of them were like, hey, I'm looking at this franchise called Liberty Tax. And they were young, like me. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to go look at that franchise too. Because I had, you know, $20,000 burning a hole in my pocket. And I knew I didn't want to spend it on stupid stuff. And it was enough for me to get into that business at that time. So I went to what I thought was a Discovery Day. People that have ever been to Discovery Day know exactly what a Discovery Day is. But it wasn't a Discovery Day. It was an annual convention. So, you know, at an annual convention, like everything's over the top and everything's the best and everybody's happy. So I'm like, this is awesome. Everybody's happy. A lot of alcohol there and a lot of good times. And so I ended up buying. And the founder was John Hewitt. And at the time he was with Jackson Hewitt started Liberty. So I'm like, here's a guy that I knew of the brand, Jackson Hewitt had his name on it. So I'm like, I want to learn from this guy. And he seems to be pretty active in the business. And so those two things going to the convention, me thinking it was a discovery day. And then John being involved in the business, I was like, I'm in. And that's why I bought. A lot of it was because It seemed like a good brand. There were young people like me getting into it, then had a good vibe. And here's the other thing too, thinking about it, that was a good question. Well, they talk a lot about working on your business, not in your business. And that made a lot of sense to me because I don't want to work on my business. So that's why I bought. Question for
2: you. So
1: in that franchise, how many tax returns did you do? Two, zero. So here's the deal, because you you work on your business, in your business. I was the worst guy to do a tax return, but during tax season, it's a seasonal business. And all of a sudden, when people are getting their W-2s, like you get people coming into your location And I remember being in the location, sitting at a desk like this, and then people in the waiting room. I'm like, they're dying to get their refund. All they have to do is walk across the street to H&R Block. And all I need to do is get them in front of me and get their information into a computer. So I'd be like, hey, customer, you know, Joe Schmo, come on over. Let me get your tax return started for you. They would come sit at the desk. I'm like, let me, capture, grab, hold hostage your W-2s, put them on my desk. And I start typing their information in very slowly because I'm about a 22 word a minute typer. So I was like typing it in slowly, just hoping that one of the real tax repairs were about done with their current customers so they can come over and finish this thing for me. So I started quite a few tax returns. Meaning I put in their name and their social into our computer <laughs> system and that was it, man. That was it.
2: I really because you know it's testament to being a great business leader, right? You know, you're not in the business of, you know, tax returns or cookies or whatever the business that someone gets into, you're in leading people. And the business is a bit of a widget. You know, it's funny. I'm having a really big learning experience now. People say to you again and again, hire people smarter than you. And it sounds so simple. And I think it goes kind of in one ear and out the other a lot of times until it really does click when you realize what that really means is like the person knows that thing more than you, way more than you. You don't even have any business advising them at all. And we do it with lawyers, right? We trust the lawyer to know better than us. But when we hire other verticals, it's like there's
1: a disconnect. And it's interesting only because for you, you probably had great accountants or is that no they weren't even accountants. So this is a really good topic. I love this topic. So we were the low end of the tax preparation business. I had good tax preparers that were accountants, but most of them were people off the street that they took an eight-week course that we trained them how to be data entry type people because the software did it all. This is literally a W-2s going in there. And how many kids do you have? And are you married or not married? And you have five W-2s and you, or in a 1099, you put that in and it kicks out, you owe this much. Or most of the time in that business, it was you get $5,000 or $7,000 refund. And so that was the business. And it was really a data entry person versus a CPA or an accountant We were just entering in W-2s basically. But I didn't even know enough to enter in the W-2s. Like I hired the tax teacher. The tax teacher did a tax school, they hired employees from the tax school that were good at data entry and knowing the software and had some education around what that looks like and the right questions to ask. So they were trained, but no, they weren't CPAs, they weren't accountants, they weren't experts. But with that said, there were a lot of people that came back to second year and the third year, and they just got more and more qualified. So they became really good at preparing taxes. But yeah, there's a difference between tax preparers, accountants, and CPAs. But to your other kind of question, I always, you know, being a C student, I heard somebody once say, A students work for C students. And so I'm like, that makes sense too. And I just believed it. Just like I believe you can work on your business and not in your business. So it's kind of dangerous that way. And so I'm like, I got really comfortable not being the expert with some of this stuff. I got really comfortable. I mean, like, I don't know taxes and I'm okay with that. I've had major surgeries on my shoulders before. So I was comfortable being in the gym, lifting two pound weights while everyone around me was lifting heavy weights. So at first I'm like, man, they're going to think differently of me. So I just got comfortable, just not caring about what people think about me. And so when it came into business, I just could care less if a tax preparer thought they were smarter than me with that. And then translate that to even doing more and more stuff. I've over the years become more comfortable in knowing that I'm a good visionary. I'm not great at being an operator. I'm not the best manager of a business. I'm not the best operator of a business, but I am a visionary. And then there are certain things that I'm really good at that other people aren't good at. And I continue to this day become more and more comfortable with the things that I'm good at and not wishing I was better at something that I'm not as good at.
0: Yeah. I love that. So you're obviously referencing the book Traction, right? When You use the word visionary versus being an integrator.
1: Yep, Traction, Rocket Fuel. The us visionaries, people that are, yeah, just visionary, will like the book Rocket Fuel because it's about a quarter of the size of Traction. The people that are operators or integrators, very management focused, they're going to love the book Traction because it gets into all the details. But yeah, absolutely referencing that. I'm glad you brought that up. I actually just took this to have my score here. Did you find that in my Facebook group? Did you see me post that in the Facebook group, the Rocket Fuel quiz? I did see it there
2: and I had read Rocket Fuel and for some reason never took the quiz. I'm 91 Visionary,
0: 74 Integrator.
1: Good. I like that. Christian, what are you, man? You know,
0: I haven't taken it yet. I bookmarked it on Facebook, so I'm going back to take it. We'll see. I would imagine that I'm probably closer to being a visionary. I don't see myself as a great operator as well,
1: but I don't know. With that, here's my lesson in some of that. I could take the test And there's people in the Facebook group that took it and they're like, hey, I'm very equal visionary and very equal integrator or operator. And it depends how you take the test and what you really understand the question to be. So the Mm -hmm. question is, you know, do you love and enjoy managing people? And someone that just glances at that could be like, yeah, I'm good at managing people. I'm a five on that or I'm a four. But then do you like, I think the question... It's, do you enjoy doing that? Like, does that bring you level five joy managing people? And there would have been a time, even a number of years ago, that I would have been like, yeah, I'm a four on that. I'm definitely a manager of people because I don't want to be managed. Now that's lower for me because I don't love managing people. I love managing one person or I love overseeing things and more visionary stuff. But I started to understand myself better. So my score today is probably more of a true reflection of what I really am versus three, four or five years ago. It probably would have been a much more equal between visionary and integrator because some of my best friends are good at both like Gerald Tomasello. He's been on my podcast. And he's really good at both. He can really fit into both roles. And I knew he was a good franchisee and he's been on the franchisor side. And I was jealous of people like him. So I thought being a good business owner meant you were a good manager, meant you were a good integrator. But I started to realize I'm really good at certain things and I'm not as good as I think I am at other things. And I'm okay with that today.
2: They need a different name for integrators. Because visionary just sounds so great. It's like everyone wants to be visionary. And integrator is just as important. It's just sounds maybe like a sexier name for the integrator person. You know, it's interesting though. Like for me, like I managed lower paid people yep. for most of my business career. I've managed both. This could be a negative, but I don't want to manage people that are not motivated in their own life anymore. I don't even like being around it. Like that attitude it rubs off on you. You know, if you have to manage someone, then they're just not a good hire, in my opinion.
1: I agree. Like, one of the best things that we did at Soul Salon Studios when we had, me and my three other business partners had 12 locations. When we had two locations, we hired Mirko. Before that, we kind of had somebody that we had to manage, a lower-level manager, and we had to manage them. And we're like, we're sick of managing people. And there were four of us managing one person. So that made it a horrible situation for the person that we were managing, having four bosses. But yet they needed that because they were not doing a very good job managing. Then we're like, we need to pay six figures. You know, this was 10 years ago, six figures to somebody to do everything for us. I think we paid them, started out at 120,000 a year with bonuses on top of that. And it was the first time that we'd done something like that in that business. And it was the best thing that we did. So now, he was reporting to us. He was like an owner. He was the district operational manager, but he could have been called the president or the CEO or whatever title that we wanted to give him because that's the role that he was really fitting in. He would come to us and be like, hey guys, we're signing this lease. I'm getting this loan. I'm doing that. And so we would just give him feedback on the things that he was needing feedback on. And we weren't necessarily managing him because he wasn't the type of person that needed to be managed. And then he eventually became a franchisee with that brand because he is that type of person. So I'm 100% with you. Even in things that I'm doing now as I'm advising different brands on some of these different things they're bringing me in as advisors and as an advisor, and that means I get equity or advisory shares or there's a lot of different ways to structure that. But what I want to do is go into a brand and be like, they need the who, not the how. And there's a great book Mm -hmm. called Who Not How but they need people to be able to get into certain functions to be able to lead that company the right way. And I'm a huge believer in that, finding the right people to do the things that need to be done. And I'd rather be the person that finds those people and fills those positions versus the guy that's managing all of that stuff.
0: Right. And you do have to have someone that is an integrator. So when is it appropriate? Like, when does it make sense to get a business partner? And I've heard you talk about this on your podcast. When does it make sense to get that business partner in place? Or when does it make sense rather than getting a business partner? Do I just hire that out? Like, how do you know which route is the right fit for you? And I know it can vary depending on... I was just
1: talking to a good friend of mine that's a very successful franchisee, multi-unit with one of the best franchises out there. By the way, they're not in the broker communities, this brand. It's a very good brand that most people would just die to be a part of. And he's looking at one of my portfolio brands as a franchisee, but he just doesn't want to be a franchisee. He's like, hey, Eric, we were just talking about this yesterday. He's like, I want to grow an empire with this particular brand. And he's like, how do I do that? So he said, do I bring on business partners in these different little markets? Or do I hire people to come into these different markets and pay them well and yada, yada, yada? I said, do both. I said, see yourself as the area developer, even though you're not a true area developer. That's what you are. Go in and just get into the brand. And when you find the person that wants to be the manager and they want to get paid, they want the bonuses, they want the hustle like that, but they just don't want to be a partner, then put them into that role and let them thrive in that role. And you'll make more money because of that. Then if you find the person that's more entrepreneurial, that wants to go into that market and be a part owner, then do that. So he has a structure where he's doing it with three other partners. And one of the partners is going to be overseeing all the operators or the managers or whatnot. And I said, what you'll probably end up doing is hiring one of those operators or hiring one of the partners to oversee the operators or oversee the other partners. And that's how you really remove yourself from the business. And so, like, if I'm wanting to grow an empire, I would keep both options on the table. For me, I've done it both ways. With Mirko, he did not have equity looking back, we should have given him equity because he was the type of person that needed equity, bring him in as a partner, pay him less. He gets to earn in equity and he would have grown that into 24 locations and we would have made a lot more money. 12 locations, we still did pretty well when private equity bought us out. And there's different ways to structure things like that. You can have earning, people can earn equity into it. Another simple way to do it as an investor I see myself more as an investor in some of these different things right now. So if I'm an investor, let's say the brand costs a hundred thousand dollars all in to get going. And I know somebody that wants to own that brand and they're going to be a good operator slash partner be like, I'll put in 90,000, you put in 10,000, I will take 30% of the business and the 90,000 and the 10,000 is a loan to the business that gets paid back right away. You as the operating partner in that get a salary everything else comes back. So we pay off that loan right away. When the loan is paid off, you own 70%, I own 30%. That's another way to kind of do a deal like that with an investor so they get their money back right away. And I know other people that do a similar type thing where instead of getting 30%, they get 40 or 50% of the business. So it's however you want to structure it as the investor or as the person that is going to be the operating partner. But that's a really simple, clean way to do it. And that's a de-risk deal because you're getting your money back sooner than later. And so as soon as you get your capital off the table, that deal's completely de risked And I know people that have investors that have done that, that get paid back within 12 months of starting a business. So think about that. The investor gets paid back 12 months because the business does so well. They only own 30% of it. You own hundred percent of it. It's debt-free And now you're in business. And I bet that investor will want to do deal number two and deal number three with you. So that's another option.
0: That's fascinating. Because I think I read about that in, what was that? Justin Donald's book, right? Where
1: he did that. Yeah, Justin Donald, Lifestyle Investor, great book. He's the 30% guy. And he's really great like that. Like Justin did that with an orange theory fitness franchisee and they've gone on to do other things since then, since the books come out, but he he'll to go in at a 30% just take 30% because he's a big believer in I'll just give up more and that's okay. Cause they'll bring me into future deals and it absolutely worked out for him. So how do you evaluate an operator? You're ponying up the money
0: for the most part, but how do you know if this person is really going to be a strong operator? Is it people that
1: have business experience or, You don't unless you do. Like Justin knew John and his wife. And so they knew that from previous experience, not necessarily business experience, but from past history. So that's more proven, not 100% proven, but you know their work ethic, you know how they think, you know how they are, you know their honesty, you know their integrity. With Mirko, we didn't know that until we did. So meaning we brought him on and we had talks internally like, Dude, Mirko's so smart, he's so driven, he's so good. We should give him equity, but we don't want to yet. And so that's when we got to know him because he proved himself. And so we probably should have given him equity at that point. Justin knew the people. The other way to do it, there's groups out there that are operating groups, and that's more in the food space. They are not in the spaces that you and I know but they're in the food space. And actually I actually had one of them come and speak into my franchisee mastermind on how he set it up. But people give 100% of the money and it's more of a syndication. So let's say there's a group of people that put in a million dollars to open up five stores and you get between 40 and 50% of that. But it's a proven operator because they've done it before. And so that's a way to do it with a group that has done it before. But if you're just starting out That's why you want somebody to have some skin in the game too. And if it's a loan, then you've got recourse on the loan to boot them out. If they are not fulfilling their loan, then you can basically reclaim that brand or that location and run it yourself if you want to. But it's a lot more risky if the jockey is unproven.
2: So let's touch on this for a second, because I think you at this point, Eric, you have just an inherent knowledge that some of this you probably can't even Put it to words, you just intuition, right? Because you've had operators. So let's say someone wants to have an operating person in their business, but they don't want to take a partner on because it's hard to get out of that. Could you break down what a compensation model to a, call it a director of operations, really the glue of the business, what you think that would look like if you're not giving up equity? Or does it depend on the engine?
1: We did a whole session on this in the franchisee mastermind. I'll give you guys access to that, by the way, YouTube, So you guys can listen to that. But there's also, it's just, there's so much, what about this? What about that goes into it? And that's why the loan structure is so nice and clean. It's just such a clean way to do it. You both put up money into it. That gets paid first. It's preferred, you know, it's like preferred or just a loan and that gets paid out. You know, and then the equity split is whatever it is on the back end. That's why that's the cleanest way to do it. I would want to test somebody before I give them equity. And you'll listen on that call that we did in the mastermind, the Zoom meeting. A lot of these people that have done equity deals with their current managers or managers started out as managers. And that's how it started out, you know? And then they proved themselves and then they started to work out, well, how do we get you? profit sharing. And sometimes they don't want that. Like they don't want that much responsibility. They just want a wage and a little bit of the upside. And sometimes it's bad. Like if there's a business that you already have and you give them equity in the business and they have to pay taxes on that right away. So that could put them into a bad situation. So that's why a lot of times it's phantom equity where they basically have the right to execute it at a certain time versus having real equity where they have to pay taxes on that. Even me coming in as an advisory, you know, I'll get a certain percentage of a business, but if I got true equity right away in a franchise or, then one of us is going to have to pay significant amount of taxes right away. Six figures plus in taxes just to have equity in there. But we structured it in a way where I'm not paying anything and it's payable upon execution. The tax burden is. So there's so many different ways to do it. And I probably just talked a little bit in circles right there. But yeah, it gets really challenging. I was actually going to be putting out a little bit of a PDF on that right now that kind of breaks it down into a simple way. And I was going to give that away for free to people based off of the session that we did in the mastermind. It's
2: interesting. It's definitely, there's some science to it. There's some art to it. You know, prior to the exit, I was the theory and operating partner. And, you know, I, I never really thought about partnerships this factor until some more time and experience. But you you don't realize people's lives change, their desires, like especially if there's a difference in age, like where someone is, what they want. Like I want completely different things than I did five years ago. I think it's challenging because people can grow in different directions. You know, you could tell when someone would be a great operating partner or they're a themselves- part person, and they're going to get there. And so you're like loaning them time, but they're going to actually want to go on their own. But then there's people that they don't want to go on their own fully. They're good with a smaller amount of equity, but a little
1: bit more certainty. And I think that's probably a big thing to look for, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's very few people that are like me, that are like you guys, that we're just like, let's roll the dice. Let's like fully entrepreneurial. And let's shoot for the moon with this stuff at different times. Most people, there's a level of safety that they want. And I'm at that way with investing now, whether it's me investing or it's the safety minded person that wants to participate in a little bit of the upside, but they want a lot of the safety. That's how I invest these days. Give me really solid returns, monthly or quarterly payments on my investment. And then I want my full principal back in two years one year preferably, three years at the most. And then I still have equity in that company after I've completely de-risked, I get all my money back. It's the same thing for most of people that are going to have some type of equity position as a partner in your business. They want the safety of the salary. They want the safety of your knowledge and experience in business. And they want to participate in a bit of the upside. They don't need a whole lot of the upside or all of the upside. Those people are really entrepreneurial. Some of them are going to make it and some of them aren't. Yeah, it's interesting for me. Like, I'm too much the other. I have to reel myself back, and I surround myself with people to kind
2: of de-risk any risk I take is calculated. But I just lack a certain fear that I think other people have. Like, it doesn't scare me, and I've lost money. But
1: I was going to say, like, when have you? And I just did a post about this a while ago. When have you been punched in the face, and how much money have you guys lost? Yeah, so I've lost double digit, close to 50, what's a double digit, like fifty thousand. Fifty? That's a good punch. In a
2: business that grew too fast, we had launched in California. Literally, this business went like this and then right back down. Up and down. We had callers there. We had an office there. and, And just the expenses just went too high, too fast. And that's what happened. And, you know, big learning experience.
1: Well, I've been punched in the face. I've had friends that have been, you know, hit way harder than me and I remember being on the John Lee Dumas podcast. He's got a podcast called EO Fire. It's the biggest, one of the first biggest podcasts that I've ever been on. And he was doing standard questions. I'm not sure if he still does that, but it's like, tell me about your biggest failure. And I had all the questions beforehand, very unlike my podcast and your podcast where we just talk and have amazing conversation. His is like, his audience wants the same thing every time. And the question comes up, biggest failure. And I'm like, man, I haven't had a really big failure yet. My biggest failure was, In 2000, I was investing in real estate after I made my first bit off of that one house I told you about earlier. I continued to flip houses one at a time. And then I was married at this time, flipped the house, and I lost like 10 grand on it. It'd be very much like today. All of a sudden, six months ago, all these houses were, you know, multiple offers. And then all of a sudden I'm like, why is my house not selling? There's not multiple offers. And I'm like, wait, I just reduced it. I just lost money. So I thought I sucked at being a real estate investor and come to find out it was just, you know, 2008 where the market just took a dive. And so I remember that was my worst failure. I lost a little bit of money on that. I'm thinking I've heard his other podcasts where people lost millions. I'm like, that's what I said. That was my biggest failure. And then fast forward, that was 10 years ago. I think I was on his podcast. And now I've lost way more money. I've had seven brands. Five of them have been great. Two of them have been dogs. I got lost significant amounts of money as a franchisee. And that helped me as a broker when I was a broker... I didn't think I could just magically pick a bunch of great franchises and give them to people because now me, the guy that was so good at being a franchisee, was punched in the face in the franchising world because I was so sure this one was going to be a rocket ship when it wasn't. And so I like to learn from my own experiences, but I've also, like I said, I've seen other business people that have been punched way harder, lost way more money you know, seven figures. And I'm like, tell me more about it because I don't want to repeat the mistakes that you've made. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, And a lot of people,
2: they wouldn't even say it out loud. Like, oh, then people think I, you know, yeah, if you lost whatever you lost, you probably now make 10 times that. I learned that in things I did wrong in business that, you know, didn't lose money in the sense of money coming out of the account. The, The potential of the business was hindered by those mistakes. And in my opinion, unfortunately, that's how we learn, right? you know, you learn from those mistakes. I hope I don't ever lose money again, but I'm sure I will. And that's
1: okay. I'm sure you will too. I'm sure I will, but I don't want to lose much anymore. And I think as you start to get to this point where you start to build up a net worth that you guys like a net worth that we never thought we would have, you know, and that's happening to all of us that are on this podcast right now. I never thought I would have this much money. It's not nearly the kind of money that a lot of my friends in franchising and outside of franchising have, but I have such safety in it. I was talking to my wife the other day and we were talking about if the economy gets really bad and I said, babe, it doesn't matter how bad it gets because we're so diversified yeah. and we're so safe and our lifestyle is so much below what we make passively and I know how to make money actively. I said, we are fine. But I was a few decisions away from going all in into some different things. And I could be having a different conversation with her right now. I'm like, we could have been like, hey, babe, we're about ready to make hundreds of millions of dollars, but we might lose everything. And I'm glad I'm not having that conversation with her because I don't need a lot more money. I want safety right now. And going into this economy that we're going into, I'm really happy where, where we are. And it's made me just look Justin talks about this a lot in our investing mastermind. We talk about a lot like de-risking deals and just having a great life. And even to the point where Justin and I have talked, we have a fund coming out. That's going to be on angel list. And we both resisted doing something like that for a long time because we didn't want the risk that comes along with having a fund until we found a way to de-risk the fund. And that's what we've done. So I'm a huge fan of de-risking things while still having a lot of upside.
0: Right. It's like Warren Buffett says, the first rule of investing is don't lose money, right? And then the second rule is go back over and look over the first rule, right? Or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. so
1: true. It's never been more true to me than it has been the last two years and really understanding what that means. And when you lose a lot of that principle, it's like, it takes a lot more to regain that back. So I'm a huge fan of that statement. You can make double because you have to pay taxes to get that. Exactly. There's so much that on the face of it, it's like, yeah, don't lose money. But like you just said, the taxes and what it really takes to regain that kind of money and then just the opportunity loss that you had with the principal that you lost it's insane so that's why that is rule number one and there's more meaning to that than what it appears yeah if
0: you have a hundred thousand dollars and you lose 50 percent well to get back to even you don't just need fifty percent you need a hundred percent right to get back to even so lose 50 you have to get a double rate of return to get back so it's important to minimize that downside I think that's absolutely critical and when you're going into any type of investment, you you have to be willing to risk some money, but you have to be careful not to do anything that's going to totally clean you out and kill you. I mean, you can survive some battle scars, but I think it's healthy to not put yourselves in situations where you can just absolutely be cleaned out.
1: Where you're losing sleep. So it was a year ago, I started to wake up and check my phone to see what crypto was doing. I'm like, (laughs) wait a second. This is not where I want to be. Like if I'm Thinking about that, I have too much in this volatile investment. And some people will be like, "Crypto's gambling or crypto is an investment. Whatever it is, it goes up and down and it's volatile. And I'm like, I have way too much in there. And so for me personally, I put a lot less in there. So when it starts to go down, I can dollar cost average into it and feel really good about it going down versus thinking... Oh my gosh, it's going down. What should I do? And that's with everything. I'm a huge fan of that de-risking and not putting too much into moonshots, because people think I do angel investing, but my angel investing is a small part of my overall portfolio. It gets kind of the moonshot part. And you know, five percent, 10 percent of an overall portfolio is good enough for me. So if that goes to the moon, that's awesome. If it doesn't, I don't lose any sleep over it.
2: I have one more question related to this because I think it's important for our, our listeners. But I think back to that mistake of you know, growing too fast and learning from that. I think now about, for me, it's important to really strong controller accounting, paying extra for the right account that really is proactive and really make sure the money is where it needs to be. And again, admitting to knowing what you're good at, what you're not good at. How about you? Like you have this whole portfolio of things going on. I mean, are you working with, team of
1: accountants? Do you have just one? Like, So I have a CPA slash tax strategist. So some people have an accountant or CPA, but you really want to have somebody that is a tax strategist, meaning they are always looking out for you and talk tax strategy with you. So I have that. And then like with the mastermind, the tribe of investor mastermind that Justin and I have, a lot of his network and resources for that have become my resources. And we do that for people in the mastermind. We give them our resources, our advisors. Now, also, this is probably the best advisor that I have. Jim Do du with due Wealth. And I don't get paid anything on this, but he's like a fractional family office. Google family office, if you don't know what that means, but it's like a fractional family office. And I pay them every month. And an example they look over my insurance every year. And they're like, you're overinsured here, you're under here, you need to do this and we'll do it all for you. I'm like, hey, I wanna get us a mortgage on some land that I own now and maybe redo some things on this property or whatever. They're like, I'll shop that out for you, Eric. So they go and shop all that out for you. They're like, here's the deal. This is what we suggest and let us know what you wanna do. I'm like, yeah, I wanna go with that particular mortgage provider for this. And they're like, okay, we'll let you know when it's ready to sign. They give them all my financials, they give them everything. And they're like, hey, what do we want to do with, we got too much cash just sitting over here. Why don't we put this into a highly liquid investment where you can pull your money out with a seven day notice. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Let's put more money into that type of thing. Like your stock, your pension plan, this Eric needs to be rebalanced over here. Let's change this over here. And so in other words, these guys are protecting my time. They're doing a lot of this stuff for me that I used to do myself. They are fiduciary relationship, meaning I'm their client and they are not getting paid commissions from an insurance company, a life insurance company, investment thing they are looking out for me and they negotiate things on my behalf. And so that's probably one of the best investments that I've made is that virtual family office with Due Wealth. And I would just jump into their, you know, they have a good like email list and they always provide good information, but you need to have a certain net worth to be with them. And they're getting more and more expensive because they have such high demand. I think they're like six or $7,000 a month to be a part of that, but they do so much. And they have a list of all of my investments, you guys. They have, like, anytime I create a new thing, they're like, send it to me, we'll add it to your list. And they are managing all of that stuff for me. So that's been game-changing. And here's the thing. If something happens to me, one day I'm here, the next day I'm gone, my wife just is like, they know everything. Or my kids or my parent, like They will know everything and take care of everything for me. So that's another way of just paying to have Time in your life to do the things that you love to do versus seen as an expense.
0: Well, absolutely, and you can't be an expert on everything. I know Robert Kiyosaki talks about it, and Rich Dad Poor Dad, and the Cash Flow Quadrant. You have to surround yourself with a team of advisors that are experts in their each individual field. Because I don't know the ins and outs of estate planning, I don't know the ins and outs of tax strategy, and I don't want to be that expert. I want to hire people and work with people that know that stuff. And one of the favorite quotes that I learned from an old mentor of mine was. You can't be a penny wise, but a dollar foolish. You don't want to step over dollars to get to dimes. So it is worth the investment to pay for advisors like that. It's worth its weight in gold in terms of the time you're saving, the downside protection that you're enabling for yourselves, and also some of the upside too. But I think that's really, really smart. And so I think it's always good for our audience,
1: anyone listening, make sure that you have that team of advisors that you're surrounding yourself with. 100% like just get started somewhere get started with a good CPA. If you don't have a great CPA, find that great CPA. Start with a good one. That's probably the best thing that you can do and talk tax strategy. And get Justin's book, The Lifestyle Investor. Great book. Eric, thank you
2: so much for joining us today. This is a lot of fun.
1: Jen, it's always a pleasure. I love seeing you. I can't wait to see you guys again at one of these franchise conferences. And thanks for having me on your show. I love your show. Keep crushing it.